Welcome to episode 84 of The Recovery Show. This episode is brought to you by an anonymous sponsor. They used the donation button on our website. Thank you for your generous contribution. This episode is for you. We are friends and family members of alcoholics and addicts who have found a path to serenity and happiness. We who live or have lived with the seemingly hopeless problem of addiction understand as perhaps few others can. So much depends on our own attitudes, and we believe that changed attitudes can aid recovery. Have you found yourself trying to do it all? Did you take care of your loved one's problems? Do you try to force things to work out your way? Have you ever felt totally unappreciated? Today we're going to talk about the four M's, managing, manipulation, mothering, and martyrdom. Before we begin, we would like to state that though we at The Recovery Show may be in a 12-step program, we represent ourselves rather than the program. During this show, we will share our own experiences as they relate to the topic of the four M's. The opinions expressed here are strictly those of the person who gave them. Take what you like and leave the rest. We hope that you will find something in our sharing that speaks to your life. My name is Spencer, and I will be your host today. Joining me is co-host Erica. Welcome back to the studio, Erica. Hi. The first segment of today's episode of The Recovery Show will be our discussion of the topic, the four M's. Following a short break, we will talk about our lives in recovery, about what's happening in the meetings we attend and in our lives. We will follow that with your email or voice contributions and some brief news about the podcast before closing. Erica, could you uh, read our reading today? It's from Courage to Change, November 9th. Yeah, sure. Um, It says, We humans are wonderfully adaptable. We find creative solutions to impossible situations. One coping skill that some of us develop is manipulating other people in order to get what we want. Alcoholism can create such a threatening environment that manipulation seems necessary. Today, with the help of Al-Anon, we are learning to do more than merely survive, and such manipulation becomes unnecessary and unacceptable. In Al-Anon, we learn healthier ways to meet our own needs and to behave towards others. Manipulation had been a normal part of my life for so long that I forgot how to have a discussion or make a straightforward request. If I wanted someone to do the dishes, I tried to make them feel guilty by telling them how much I had done for them, or I complained that they never did their part. It never occurred to me that I could simply and politely ask for what I wanted, or that I could accept my request being turned down. But I'm learning. A day at a time, I'm learning. Today's reminder, today I am creating a better way of living, free of guilt and deception. And then there's a quote from In All Our Affairs, it says, we choose to behave with personal integrity, not because it will make someone else feel better, but because it reflects a way of living that enriches and heals us. Thanks, Erica. And that talked mostly about uh, one of the four M's, and uh, that being manipulation. Uh, the uh, the four M's, they actually uh, they came from a reading in our daily reader, Hope for Today, which unfortunately I don't have a copy of. But we also have managing, mothering, and martyrdom. I know that uh, at different times in uh, in my life, I have used probably just about all of these. How about you, Erica? Uh, yeah. I so so have I. <laughs> I suppose if I hadn't, I probably wouldn't be here. <laughs> um, I did. I definitely think manipulation is at the core. Um, I'm trying to control the things around me. At, mm-hmm. at at the core is where all those things, all of those behaviors, the four M behaviors, come out of that. Uh, 
wanting to control situations. That things around us are not comfortable for us. They're not the way we want them to be. And so these are, uh, so to speak, tools that we use to try to try to change the people around us, try to change the situations we're in. Um, you know, I think the reading kind of pointed it out, but how does, how does for you manipulation differ from, uh, you know, just like asking somebody to, uh, to do something that you want or to give you something that you want? Well, I asking someone for what I want or what I need is uh, there's, it's scary because like the reading said, they could turn me down and I never, I don't know uh, why or what happened um, to uh, develop that character defect in me to not straightforward ask, you know, someone mm-hmm. what I, mm-hmm. for what I needed. Mm-hmm. I, um, I was, I just am afraid people won't like me if I ask them to do something for them. They'll get mad and they'll, you know, just get mad that I ask for something. I, I don't want to ask them for help because I don't want them to think that I need it. I want them to think that I'm the strong, independent woman that, you know, that I tried to portray for so long, this idea mm-hmm. of what I should be. Um, mm-hmm. I thought that being strong and independent was doing everything myself and uh, not relying on anybody else. And I did get messages, direct, actual verbal messages like that growing up, that I shouldn't rely on anybody else. The only person I can rely on is myself and my my f- immediate family. And um, so it was really, it's really hard to ask for help. It's very scary to say, or just to ask for someone to do something for, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, to contribute or to help. And gosh, I'm my brain is just going through all the different situations that I can... That I've been through in my young adult life that... Can, can you maybe share one with us? Yeah, sure. <laughs> There's, I'm laughing because at the time, all of these things, all of these situations where I manipulate seem very serious, but some of them were really not. And um, I had a number of roommates in college, and... Um, when you live with people oh, yeah. the for the first time, <laughs> um, you know, you're living with people your age. I lived with some of my friends, too, which made it even more tricky because um, there was a lot at stake for us not to get along. And there's I, I really wanted to keep things a certain way and keep people, keep myself and others good favor. And so if I asked for my roommate to do the dishes... Mm-hmm. You know, I was so afraid that they were going to respond back, and and so so what did you do instead? Well, there was one situation that um, uh, two of us kind of manip- ganged up and manipulated one of my roommates, um, who we thought we felt that she needed to do her dishes that she had yeah. gotten dirty. Yeah, and instead of asking her, "Hey, can you do your dishes?" <laughs> um. We did all the other dishes except for the ones that she got dirty, and we left them in the sink. Uh, I think I owe her. Oh, that sounds that's just so natural. I, I I'm making a amends do. for this behavior. Thankfully for the program and for the steps, I can make amends for this uh-huh. bad behavior of mine. Uh-huh. But the dishes did not get done because clearly, when someone everyone does your that all the dishes except for yours. Mm-hmm. It's a message, and and I know mm-hmm. how I would probably respond if someone did that to me. I would probably respond 
before the program, I would spot, respond by not doing the dishes, and that's exactly what <laughs> that's happened. That's exactly what happened. And nothing good happened from that situation because it just bred resentment mm-hmm. on both sides. Um, yeah. There's I, there's just a lot of – it wasn't – the it, it was just all fear-based. Everything was all fear-based. Yeah, I can think of, of similar situations like um, – taking my wife's uh, clothes on the bed and piling them all on her pillow, mm-hmm. you know, because then she'll obviously realize, oh, I have to take care of these. Uh, she didn't know that, of course, right? No, never. Mm-hmm. Um, that's my twisted thinking. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, um, you know, there's, there's a, I know there were times in the, in the past when, um, you know, when I was angry about her drinking and, and thought, you know, it's just too much that I definitely tried to manipulate the situation so that maybe we would like run out of alcohol or something. Uh, and, uh, it, um, you know, it, it didn't usually, didn't usually end well. Mm. I'll just say, um, you know, oh, well, gee, I don't know about any restaurants. Why don't we go to McDonald's? Uh, you can't get wine at McDonald's, can you? You know, so I'm trying to manipulate the situation instead of saying, I'd rather you don't drink. I'd say, well, let's let's go here because you know you won't be able to drink here. But I don't say that. I just I just do it. Um, and and I think you're right. I mean, part of it is not wanting rejection, not wanting to be rejected. That if I manipulate the situation and then I don't get the outcome I want, that's not really like her or whoever saying to me, "No, I'm not going to do what you want. I'm not going to give you what you want because I didn't ever ask for it." Whereas if I ask for it and then she says no, well now I've been rejected, and yeah, and and I'd rather feel a little dirty than get rejected, obviously. <laughs> um, so I was reading um, reading a piece on the internet last night about the four M's, and uh, when when he uh, talked about managing, and I was trying to think, you know, because managing manipulation maybe seemed kind of similar, but. The word he, uh, the phrase he used when he was the, describing sort of managing behavior was control freak, which is sort of the extreme of of managing, and and uh, that um, this is something I don't know. Control freak, probably somebody would say I was a control freak at times. I'm sure uh, that um, you know I knew how to run things. I knew how things were supposed to work. I know how things are supposed to work, right? If you just let me, I just, Mm -hmm. everything will be perfect if I just can run them. And, uh, and so I would uh, take on everybody's responsibilities because, you know, I could manage them a lot better than everybody else. Uh, The other, the other side of that was, um, you know, in the alcoholic situation, uh, taking on responsibilities, taking control of, of everything in the house because, you know, obviously, my partner was not able to do that, and you know, so taking care of, uh, you know, getting the kids to school and the childcare and the finances and the groceries and and everything, and it, and that was something that I felt I had to do, or that wouldn't get done. And I think I know I've talked to other friends in the program that that came to that. If I don't do it, it won't happen. I have to do it. Um, and, uh, I don't know, have you been, been in that, uh, had that feeling sometimes? Uh, yeah, definitely. Um, 
other, another codependent, maybe, I don't know if they're codependent, but another person in my life who has some of my same defects <laughs> does a lot of managing. And I, I see a lot of myself in this person. And there's just a, the, the flip side to that managing and controlling everything is that um, this person then takes on the role of the martyr after all, doing all that mm-hmm. stuff. Mm-hmm. So I'm not sure. I, I find myself sometimes doing a bunch of things and then expecting other people to recognize that I'm doing it. Right. Yeah. Hey, everybody, I did all these things. Yeah. So I don't know if it's. I don't know if my Do motives I get credit? were credit. Yeah, I don't know if my motive was always to make sure everything was done correctly. Mm-hmm. Um, I think my motives. I mean, I remember in kindergarten. Kindergarten. I was in kindergarten. The teacher called everyone down to the floor. We had not cleaned up our stuff at our table from the craft. We hadn't mm-hmm. like gone. Like she was like, "No, don't worry about it. Come sit down." Well, I stayed up there and I picked up all these little scraps of paper. And I remember thinking, I want her to tell me thank you or good job or something like that. And that's – so I don't know. My my motive at that time was not to make sure the room was clean because, frankly, <laughs> I am not that tidy of a person. It was definitely t- for some sort of recognition, and all I got was, Erica, please sit down. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and that – I mean, I think back to that because that was a defining memory for me as part hmm. of like some of my – behaviors as a growing up i just wanted people to recognize that i hey look what i'm doing and i'm doing it for you and doing it you know and um and if they don't recognize and it, it just turns into that martyr mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know the so i don't know i don't know if it's managing or if it's martyrdom i think a lot of these four run oh, together they do they do as you were talking as you were talking i thought about um so when i i think i was about Six or seven, um, and my brother's two years younger than me, and uh, my father uh, was a film buff in the sense that he took pictures and 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 shot movies back in the sixties when it was less common. And uh, he made this little movie at Christmas time that he called Anticipation, and it sort of was a film of movie of all the things that we did, getting ready for. Um, no, I must have been older than six because my sister was in it. So it must have been like eight, maybe my brother was six anyway. And part of it was, so we didn't have a fireplace in our house. We lived in an old house, but it had actually been built by the local coal merchant. So it didn't have a fireplace because he had a central furnace using his coal, Mm. you know, because he had to like show off how modern he was that he had like central heat instead of a a fireplace. (laughs) It was built in the 1860s, as I recall, when a lot of homes still were heated with fireplaces or maybe Uh wood stoves. And, uh, and so we didn't have a fireplace. And so how was Santa going to come? You know, so we had these cardboard brick building blocks that we would stack up and make a fireplace with these things. And so in this film, you see the two of us like coming in and we're all like excited and everything, right? Because I'm sure he told us to, to be excited or maybe we just were hams, I'm, I'm sure. And we're building this fireplace and I... And I remember watching this thing years later, and I am so bossy. <laughs> I am like telling my brother, "No, you're doing it wrong. You have to do this," you know. And <laughs> and, and uh, you know, I was a little bossy pants or something when I was a kid, and then you know, kind of afraid to say I probably kept that trait. Um, <laughs> I am, 
it, this is still a this is still a defect that I it's going away. Um, you know, it's lessening, it's progress, not perfection, obviously. Uh, that I still really have this inclination, particularly at work, but in other situations, to to jump in and start you know, being the, the director, the boss, because again, I know the right way to do it. And, and obviously, you know, these people are not doing it right. Or maybe they are, but you know, I have to like show up. I don't know. I just do it. It's, it's, you know, I think of the, of the four M's, that is one of my strongest ones probably is just jumping in and managing. Mm. Um, so I had, a, I had a little bit of trouble thinking about, about mothering, but Again, this uh, this thing I was reading last night, um, which I'm not gonna I'm not gonna link to it because it was um, it was written in a kind of a sexist way about you know the wife and the alcoholic husband and this, the long suffering wife or whatever and yeah and uh, you know but he did have some good things to say and he talked about mothering as when you really start going in and and cleaning up after uh, another person is one aspect of mothering. And I can definitely remember um, that sort of behavior that, uh, um, you know, when when uh, my loved one was drinking and would make some kind of a mess, um, you know, I would feel I had to, I had to clean it up. Um, I think enabling falls under mothering behavior. Yeah, um, definitely. Uh, I don't know. What, what are your uh, sort of thoughts about mothering and maybe how it shows up in your life? Uh, I do the mothering by... Um, giving my opinions on t- as to what other people should be doing for their own good. Um, uh, yes. I actually just did it last week with a friend. Uh, I saw her doing something that I know she's trying not to do. Mm. I think. Oh, that's I don't a good know. example. Oh, I don't yeah. know if she was or not, actually, now that I think about it. But in, at the time, I was like, I know, I knew her issues with this behavior. I'd heard her talk about it before. And I jumped right in after I saw her do it. Hey, remember? Blah, 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 blah. Yes. Oh, my God. And um, it, I think that it's okay to remind people what they said and what they, you know, if they asked, if she asked me to hold her accountable or if she asked me my opinion about right. it. <laughs> like, I ask my sponsor for accountability. Right. And um, some of my other friends and some people I have that relationship with, but. I don't think that uh, she wanted my opinion at all about this situation. <laughs> yeah. And I, 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 that's probably the one that has lingered the most for me. And it doesn't always come out verbally, but I really do think that I have the answers for other people. Um, thankfully, I've been given the insight that I do that. Um, I didn't know that I was doing it until I got into the program. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought I truly had everyone's best interest at heart there. And that's, that's why I have a lot of, try to have a lot of compassion for people who are still, uh, maybe suffering and haven't found 12 steps. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. because I know how true and it was for me, it was my reality that I was helping or trying to, and they just right. weren't listening right. if they would just listen. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I wanted the, I truly wanted the best, but there was this underlying belief that I was better. Like mother, a mother is someone who's more older, more capable of 
meeting your needs. There's someone who's like literally at mother meets yeah. your needs for the first yes. so many years of oh, your yeah. life. At the base of that mothering behavior is that belief that I'm better, mm-hmm. which is something that I've discovered by you know doing an inventory of my behavior is that I'm for me to tell someone else what's right for them is essentially me believing that I'm better than them. And one of the gifts of the program has been realizing that I am no better than the person next to me who's maybe doing some of the same things I do. Yeah. So. Yeah. And I think, I mean, I look at my, the way I behave with my, um, my children who are young adults now. And a lot of the time I think I, I treat them as the young adults that they are. Um, but there are occasions when I get into, I don't know, maybe it's fathering behavior, but whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, one of, the, one of the ones that's really hard for me, still really hard for me, is when I'm in the car and my daughter's driving. And I feel like I have to point out that car that's pulling out of the driveway ahead of us and the fact that there's a stop sign up ahead. And, you know, she's pretty patient with me. <laughs> <laughs> she <That's> is. Nice. <laughs> that's good. But uh it's 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 definitely there. And and that's the thing, you know, is that the some of these behaviors are are entirely appropriate at times in people's lives, you know, when with my kids anyway. I mean, you know, there was time when they were not that savvy about the world and they really needed, you know, guidance and direction. Um but when I take those same instincts and I apply them to an adult person who um, is maybe in my head I see them as a child because of you know they're impaired by drink or whatever Um, and then I take so then I take that experience and it becomes a habit and then I do it when they're no longer impaired and now it's really bad Mm. um you know, in terms of like the relationship and like you say, the sort of better thing, you know, really putting, sort of putting them in a lower position. Um, but there's, there definitely was the, that, you know, the, I have to clean up all the messes thing going on when, uh, you know, when we were in the drinking. Um, and, uh, and then we come to martyrdom, which which we've already touched on. Uh, yeah, a little bit. You know, look at me. I'm doing such a good job. Why, you know, poor, look at look at me. Give me credit. Poor me. Um, poor me. I work so hard. And what reward do I get? Nothing. Um, and uh, I know you talked a little bit about, about um, you know, sort of feeling martyred, uh, feeling martyred or, or playing the martyr. Uh, do you have more to say about that? Um. You know, I just have so many instances that I've done that. Like, that's one of the first sort of behaviors that I remember doing. A lot of martyrdom happened growing up as a um, teenager and young adult with my family of origin. Um, On all parts, everybody, I would say every one of us, maybe with the exception of one, but three out of the four of us are very good at these four M's, and hmm. um, the other one's really good at uh, middle finger detachment. Is really how that works. And 
um, I think that it it turned into for me. Uh, I call it scorekeeping. Mm. Um, I was always keeping score. Mm-hmm. I would keep score of who was keeping score. <laughs> oh, jeez. <laughs> but I would I I would say, okay, I did this this day. That person has to do it that day. I did this. They did that. I gave up this for you in my relationships. That's how it kind of goes. I paid for this for you. Um, I, what brought me to the program is that I was in a relationship with someone who was um, an alcoholic in recovery. Um, For those of you who are new and listening, that does not mean that recovery, the alcoholic being recovery doesn't necessarily mean that I can't get anything out of Al-Anon. So I definitely still had needs when I came here. And one of the things that I was doing in that relationship was paying for a lot of things mm-hmm. willingly and almost forcefully. It was that managing, mm-hmm. trying to manage their life financially and trying mm-hmm. to manage our life that I had in mind for us financially. And then I used that later to get the things I wanted, which was mostly I wanted reassurance. Mm-hmm. Hey, I, I spent a lot of money on this relationship. I didn't say this verbatim, but that's how of I course pres- not. Of course not. No, I manipulated the words. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but I felt that if I, I you know, I, I put so much time and money into the relationship that I expected a certain recognition. Yeah. And a certain um, guarantee. Um, and I never got that. And, mm. um, you know, that was all me. I did, I realized, you know, I learned this, I learned through this situation. It was, it was really in the end, I'm thankful that I went through that, but, um, martyrdom and scorekeeping for me has have played a part in almost every single friendship and relationship. And the most interesting ones are where it's happening on either side. Hmm. Um, those are really the. You're they're both, also you're both doing that. Huh? Oh yeah, those are the relationships where we're very enmeshed in one another's lives, and very affected by the other person. And um, it didn't work for me. It doesn't work for me. It's. <laughs> I'm so glad that there's a new way of life because I don't feel good about doing it at all. When I look mm-hmm. back, um, I definitely am planning on. Making amends or currently making amends for scorekeeping and and acting like, you know, uh, other people had to do things because I did things and expecting a certain outcome just because I happened to pay for, you know, that month's rent, you need to, then I would expect some sort of gratitude or some sort of recognition or mm-hmm. Guarantee that, you know, that month's rent isn't going to waste, yeah. you know? It's definitely circling around. I mean, it's definitely, for me at least, a uh, form of manipulation that, you know, I've suffered so much. You should you should give give me what I want now. And it doesn't often work, you know. And, I, you know, I was thinking about it as you were talking, and, and I still will do that sometimes. It's sort of like... Um, you know, somebody will ask me to do something. Let me be specific here. My wife will ask me to do something. And I will be, oh, I'm so tired. I've been working so hard. Instead of saying, and this is manipulation, right? Instead of saying, you know, I, I really 
uh, don't have the energy to do that right now. It's like, no, I need to make her feel sorry for me so she'll withdraw the request. And, <laughs> and then I don't have to say no, see? Um, so you talked about you're, you're glad that there's a new way to live. And, you know, we've spent enough time in the problem. Let's talk about some of the, the solution. solution. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, you know, Al-Anon uh, gives us some tools. And, and one of the ones that you talked about that I, I don't know exactly how to – it's just this, this notion that I can just straightforwardly ask for things that I can straightforwardly say what I want. And I guess then that it, it has to be okay for the other person to say no. Maybe that's the flip side of that. But that was, it seemed like such a bizarre concept to me somehow. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and, you know, we talk about choices that, and I think that the discussion about, you know, I did all these things for you. Now you should do something for me. I mean, it's really about choices and it's about recognizing that we make particular choices and that those are our choices. Mm -hmm. uh, and that expecting somebody else to respond in a particular way to our choices without us having made any like agreement about that beforehand is, um, how to put it, faulty thinking. I don't know. Um, what what tools have you uh, found that have really helped you to move out of these managing, manipulating, mothering, martyring behaviors? The steps. The steps. The steps. The steps. These are behaviors that – these are character defects for me. Um, Got to start with step one first, mm -hmm. you know, um, that you can't control people because if you if you really believe in that illusion – it's an illusion mm – -hmm of control, mm -hmm. then these behaviors are going to continue. They And is, until I uh, recognize that I could not control the people, places, and things around me, then um, I couldn't yeah. move forward on those. And then the higher power piece that comes next in the steps is important to me too because – I know I always say this when I come on the show. I say the steps as the tools, mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. for me, it, it really is the tools that help me. And um, the you ha I had to believe in a higher power who was going to take care of me before I was able to start asking for what I needed. Because mm. if I don't have the higher power who's going to give me everything I need and um, who I can turn my will and my life over to, then... I'm going to live in that fear of what if I don't get what I want? What if I don't get what I think I need? What I think I need yeah. is not always what I need. My yeah. higher power gives me what the things I truly need. And um, so the higher power piece has to come first. And then the fourth step comes where, you know, you can kind of look at some of these things more specifically and figure out, you know, where I'm doing my martyring and with whom I've been doing these things with for a long time and talk about them and admit to them and then start. That's when the change starts. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I would have to agree with that, that, um, that is the, that is the central tool of the program is, is the process of looking at myself 
And before that, having, you know, the support of a loving God mm-hmm. so that I can look at myself without too much fear. Mm-hmm. I know it says fearless and searching moral inventory in step four. And, you know, mostly, like everything, mostly, <laughs> there's some fear. Um, you know, the support and the support of other people in the program and their experience and knowing that other people have done this and have found it to be a positive thing was really helpful to me when I was first doing it. So seeing seeing myself much more clearly uh, and seeing that I have strengths, um, you know, I am a capable person and I don't have to manipulate people into doing what I want. That that I can ask for what I want and usually get it, really. I mean, if it's not unreasonable. Right, if I ask for something and that one thing that I ask for, worst case scenario, the person says, no, I don't ever want to be your friend again. Quit asking me for things I'm not talking to you anymore. Because that, to me, is the worst case scenario. Has that happened? No, never. <laughs> right. But if that were, you know, and, and even so, I would be okay. I would be yeah. okay. I would be sad, yeah, probably, because yeah. there's a reason I want that person to like me usually. Yeah. But I would be okay if they if they thought anything different of me because what they think of me is none of my business. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, I really like that. I really like what you were saying. Um, another tool that was really really helpful to me in letting go of. Managing and mothering in particular um, with uh, my alcoholic loved one was the loving detachment, the concept of loving detachment that I can separate myself emotionally and spiritually uh, from this person who is, you know, behaving in a uh, chaotic, non-functional, crazy way uh, and whose behavior was dragging me in. And making me crazy, making my life, how's that go? Unmanageable, yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that I can I can separate myself from that, and I don't have to be caught up in it. And I don't have to have it drag me down and around and back up and sideways. And I can do it while still loving the person. And that, you know, when I first heard that, I didn't understand that at all. How can you do that? How can you love somebody but but be separate? Well, we are separate. Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> we're separate people. There's space between us. We have, you know, bodies with skins. And, and, and you know, despite the illusion that, you know, when you're married or you're in love, you're like this one person in two bodies. It's not true. It's never been true. Uh, but it's such a, it's such an illusion. And that was part of, I think what, what really dragged me down was that, you know, I had to, I had to make her happy. And so to be able to detach with love, um, made it a lot easier to not continue to try to manage her life and to not mother her and, you know, to stop enabling where, in the definition of enabling as getting between a person and the consequences of their actions. And that's what a mother does, you know, 
there's this ad on TV, and I forget what it's for, which is good, uh, where it's probably insurance or something. I don't know. <laughs> um, you know, where it's got all these scenes of this father, like, catching the kid right before he runs headlong into a brick wall or, you know, falls off a, a wall or something. And, and you know, and and that is the image. That is what parents are supposed to do, right? We're supposed to protect our kids from the the bangs and and of the world. And I thought it was my job to protect my loved one from the bangs of the world. And I realized that, you know, as an adult, as, as two adults, it's, that is no longer my job. And it, and that in fact, it wasn't healthy for either of us. Uh, it just reminds me of towards the end of my living with my, um, ex-partner there was a moment where it um he said to me i depend on you a lot and i'm starting to resent you for it and i was hurt by it at the time but now i know looking back that um I don't know. I, I was hurt, but I also didn't fully understand it. Mm-hmm. And looking back now, it was one of the most um, – it was very good for him to be honest about that. And um, he was doing the best for himself yeah. in his recovery. And I'm thankful that that happened because it taught me that, you know, kind of what – it kind of was a face-to-face um, – reality check with my behaviors and what I had been doing and what what it was actually turning into right. and it was a really honest moment and it was really kind of exactly what I, I it's exactly what can happen when yeah. I start mothering someone and they let me oh my gosh when they let me I'm like woo and I, I feel like that's exactly what happened is I met someone who let me mother and manage their life and be a martyr and told and until you know the straw broke the camel's back like anybody right. and um it was good for me to realize that that's not good for me and it's not it's not giving the other person the dignity to make their own mistakes mm-hmm. and to make their own decisions yeah to to someone um i've been listening to a lot of um Open Talks, Al-Anon Open Talks mostly, and a couple of women uh, expressed this, uh, sort of what you were saying, very directly. This one woman was talking about how she would go out to the to the bar, and she would spot this guy, and, you know, and like lock eyes with him, and and they would get closer and closer, and and they would be maybe they would dance some and and she says and then he said those magic words i need you <laughs> she said that was my drink <laughs> i could not get enough of that there was never enough of that to fill me up and um you know i hadn't i hadn't had that exact experience um but i know that i was definitely attracted to people that I felt I am still attracted to. I will have to say I'm still attracted to people that I feel need me in some way. If I can help people that just, you know, makes me feel so good. Um, and, and I have to be careful to, 
get that met in a healthy way to not get entangled with another person because I feel like I can help them. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and maybe that's one thing that's good about a podcast is like, I can feel like I'm helping people, but I'm not getting enmeshed and entangled because I've never met just about everybody who listens, right? <laughs> <laughs> Physically. Um, and, uh, yeah, I don't know. So, uh, hope that doesn't make you stop listening. Okay. Uh, self-care is a, is a tool we've talked about, uh, taking care of ourselves. And that helps particularly if we feel like, um, we're tempted to become the martyr or we feel like we're becoming the martyr that we can stop and take care of ourselves because we're really the only people who know what we really need and what we really want. Or maybe we don't even know what we need. Maybe we need to turn to our higher power for that. What do you think? Uh, when I think of self-care, yeah, I definitely think there's a higher power piece. Um, trusting that if you step back and just do what you need to do for you, if I do, if I do, if I start to take care of myself rather than the other person, trusting that everything's going to work out with that other person, trusting that they're going to get what they need to, mm-hmm. um, cause it, there's a, there's a fear, I think, especially with, um, I'm not a mother, but I do mother. I like do a lot of mothering, uh-huh. and there's this fear that you know what ha- what will happen to them if I don't step in and try to help. Oh yeah, are they going to die? Because that's the ultimate bad thing, right? right? Usually the answer is no. Yeah, maybe you know in the deep sickness throes of the you know addiction and alcoholism, maybe, and that's when really the higher power piece is very very important because that person is going to make their own decisions and they might not be good ones. And it's really hard to step back. Um, the way the self care piece comes into that is, am I safe? And I, I've mm, never been mm-hmm. in a situation. No, I've been in a situation that was slightly dangerous with one of the alcoholics in my life. Um, I was not able to take self care until later on in the situation, but in there comes a point, I think, where I have to decide whose safety is more important, mine or theirs. Mm-hmm. And um, if I'm so concerned with their safety that I'm putting myself into danger to try to, what, I don't know, pull them away, yell at them until they stop what they're doing, and, you know, you could agitate yeah. the person, you could put yourself into physical danger and legal danger. And that is like, I think, where self care really becomes important when it's at the base level if your safety or health or sanity is in danger Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and and you know as my program goes on my tolerance for that like that danger and my sanity being compromised my tolerance is less and less i mean my sanity and my peace of mind is so important to me now that if i feel that emotionally I'm being hurt or maybe hurt, I will take myself out of that situation as a way of caring for myself. Yeah. And that I was, uh, I was going to try to lead into that, that issue of sort of emotional safety Mm -hmm. and you went right there Uh, because I think the situations that I've been in, I think um, Physical safety for me was not an issue most of the time, but emotional safety very definitely has been has been an issue sometimes. 
Um, coming, coming back around um, about, you know, sort of asking for what we want, um, I'm reminded of the, uh, uh, the saying that I've heard it a number of different ways, but the way I like it is say what you mean, mean what you say, and don't be mean when you say it. <laughs> uh, because I know for me there's, there's different ways of asking for, for something, uh, asking for another person to do something. And I can request politely or I can, let's see. Okay. So here's an example, a very simple example. Could you take your table, your, your plate from the table to the, de- to the kitchen sink, please? Okay. I said what I meant. I meant what I said, and I wasn't me when I said it. So, are you going to leave those dirty dishes on the table all night? <laughs> okay. Same concept. One of them's very manipulative, kind of mean, um, not really saying what I mean, uh, definitely being mean when I say it. Uh, which one is, I know which one for the people in my life is more likely to get the table from, get the plate from the table to the sink. Uh, and which one is more likely to leave both of us in uh, a congenial frame of mind. <laughs> you could probably guess too. <laughs> it's the second one, of course, right? <laughs> not, not, totally not. Well, and, and along with that, I'd like to add a little, uh, Appendix to it. Say it once. Oh, yeah. And be done with it. Um, unless legitimately, you know, I think there's exceptions to every rule. But for me, it's important to remember that because I tend to nag. Yeah. And if my current partner listened to this podcast, he would probably crack up. <laughs> and s- I don't know what roll his eyes, but it's true. Um, I will ask for things. And I'll ask for it in the in the way I mean it, and I mean what I say, and I try to be nice when I say it, but I ask for it again mm-hmm. and again mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. again. Yeah. And they're not the person's usually not deaf. Yeah. And they're usually listening, and it's not always necessary for me to ask over and over again. That just breeds resentment, and it it is my motive is usually to get what I want and get my way. And work the situation out the way I think it should be worked out. Um, and there, that all goes back to that higher power piece that trusting that the person heard me and will make the decision that's best for them and that I will get what I need. Yeah. And, and recognizing that what I need may not be what I want. Yes. Unfortunately. <laughs> Needs versus wants. Yeah. And and actually, a way I've heard that also said is be brief, be honest, be gone. Mm, yes. Which I think is advice I've heard, for example, about giving amends. And, I uh, like that. Um, I think I heard that from a from a double winner in in one of my meetings, but it because it it has that sort of I don't know alcoholic ring to it that this very straightforward, almost blunt phrasing. Mm-hmm. But it's so easy to remember. You know, I mean, that's the thing. Be brief, be honest, be gone. Three words. Well, okay, six words, but B doesn't really count. So, <laughs> <laughs> And there's the repetition, which helps uh, helps to remember. So 
I'm, I, I'm trying to think how to how to sort of wrap up here. Just thinking about how um, I definitely lived uh, a life that was that was full of four M's uh, before, particularly before right before I found this program because I didn't know any other way to survive in the unmanageability that was happening in my life. Um, I don't think I felt that these were good ways to behave. I just didn't know other ways to behave. And, and like you said, uh, you know, the program and the steps have helped me to find better ways to achieve the outcomes that I was trying to achieve with uh, managing manipulation, mothering and martyrdom. How about you? It's also helped me realize that I don't, the out, the outcomes that we're trying to achieve, like you said, right. some of them aren't necessarily my place. Um, some of them are me trying to force a solution that may, I may need to give up to my higher power. Um, another way, another thing that keeps ringing through my head while we talk about this, because I, I don't know if people listening can hear it in the way I share, but I tend to be very hard on myself. And when I start thinking about the way I'm manipulating, managing, mothering, and being a martyr, and my immediate response, my default response is, wow, I'm a horrible person. Why did I do these things? Why did I do that thing this past week? Mm-hmm. Why do I continue to do this? And mm-hmm. I heard very on early on in the program someone sharing about um, – needing to be gentle with herself and I need to be gentle with myself. I need to be gentle and open-minded at the same time about learning about myself. And um, it's okay for me to learn, oh, this is something I'm doing. Mm -hmm. And I can just, that's something I'm doing, period. Not because I'm a horrible person, not because, you know, this or that or this or that. This is something I'm doing. It's not really something I want to do the next time I get an opportunity. And that can be enough in that moment. So, All right. Thanks. After a short break, we will continue uh, with our lives in recovery where we talk about the meetings we attend and what's happening in our lives. And our first uh, musical selection for this show... uh, which you can uh, listen to on the website at therecoveryshow.com slash 84 is uh, Pink Floyd with the song Mother. This is from The Wall, which is a a wonderful um, ode to dysfunction, I think. Uh, and this, this song, uh, this mother, wow. Uh, <laughs> here's some of, the, some of the words. Hush now, baby. Baby, don't you cry. Mama's going to make all of your nightmares come true. Mama's going to put all of her fears into you. Mama's going to keep you right here under her wing. She won't let you fly, but she might let you sing. Mama will keep baby cozy and warm. And to me, that, that those lyrics in particular just, you know, epitomize the um, unhealthy, unhealthy mothering uh, that, uh, uh, I could very easily have been doing um, earlier in my life, and which hopefully I am no longer 
wanting to do, I'm sure I'm still capable. In this section of the podcast, we talk about our lives in recovery, about what's happening in our meetings and our lives this week. And uh, I went to this meeting. I went to my Saturday morning meeting. It's a step a step meeting. And I forgot that it was the first Saturday of the month. And at that meeting on the first Saturday of the month, one of the tables is a four-step table where they're working their way through the Blueprint for Progress book one sort of one question, one or maybe sometimes two questions a week. Mm -hmm. It's going to take a long time. I mean, not a week, a month, because it's only once a month, right? Mm -hmm. Obviously, this is not, obviously, this is not how you work your fourth step uh, in any kind of a expeditious way, but it's, it's, it's an interesting way to do a meeting. So I got there a little bit late. Saturday, those of you who are, Fans of football, as opposed to football, mm-hmm. or as we call it here, soccer, uh, <laughs> may may remember that uh, last Saturday was the uh, uh, an exhibition game between uh, Manchester United and Real Madrid here in Ann Arbor with a crowd of 109,000 people. I live near the stadium. Yeah, you're not a fan. <laughs> I can tell. I live near the stadium, and what that means is that uh, if I want to have a parking space on the street, I need to keep my car in it, or I need to keep a car in it. And we were trying to hold a parking space on the street so that my daughter's friend, who was going to the game, would be able to park without having to pay an outrageous amount of money. People in the neighborhood were charging like $40 to park a car. Nice. Yeah. Nice little bit of income. You mm-hmm. know, put two cars on your front lawn, 80 bucks. there you go. And uh, so I walked to my meeting. And as I was, and I left a little bit late because it's, kind of the person I am. <laughs> and and I thought, well, you know, okay, I can walk in a few minutes later, it'll be okay. And then I looked at my uh looked at my calendar, my phone and realized that I was supposed to be reading the opening at the meeting. So I was humping down the street, you know, trying to get there on time and I got there about a minute late and somebody else uh was starting the reading and immediately handed it over to me. <laughs> I'll let Spencer continue. I'm like, "Okay, thank you." <laughs> <laughs> So I, you know, I quickly put my stuff down at one of the tables and and did the opening. And then as I sat down, I realized, oh, it's, you know, first Saturday and I'm sitting at the four-step table. But okay, I'll stay here, see what happens. I think the other table is doing step eight. So, mm-hmm. which is, made a list of all the persons we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all or something to that effect. And I was like, eh, I'll stick with the fourth step. So they pull out the book and say, what question are we on? Oh, yes, we're in the intimacy chapter. Ah. And we're on this question, how am I intellectually and spiritually intimate with the alcoholic? Oh, and I was, I, 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 when, I, when I spoke up, I said, you know, there's a reason I'm sitting at this table today. There's a reason that my higher power had me put the books down over here today put my stuff down over here today because this is something I'm struggling with. You know, my wife's nine years sober and I'm still struggling with um, feeling enough trust to be spiritually intimate, um, to open up, to be vulnerable. Um, You know, that's how much damage that alcoholism did to our relationship, at least on my side. Uh, So (laughs) I said, I obviously needed to be sitting here at this table and trying to answer this question today. 
and and there was a lot of good sharing around the table. And uh, my meeting um, that I went to last night, hmm, topic was sort of about denial and about the phrase that that uh, uh, several people picked up on from the reading, which was the reading from Courage to Change for uh, August 4th, if you're interested. There's a phrase, looking at the past without staring. And and the reading really talked about, you know, being able to look back and to learn from the things that we've gone through without, you know, without obsessing on them, basically. Looking back without staring. Um, and that's, that's, you know, that's a good thing. Uh, and that's something I think that... Uh, you know, we learn to do in the program. We learn to to look at look at what we've done, as you were saying, to say, "Yeah, okay, you know, that's what I did," and and to not have to say, "And therefore, I'm a horrible person." Which, yeah, I've been there. That's I got that voice. That voice that says you're a horrible person. Um, trying to think about what's what's going on in my life, and and what's going on in my life is just a lot of work and. A lot of relaxing and not thinking when I'm not at work, and that's sort of where I where I am this week. How about you, Erica? Uh, this week was uh, good for me. Um, I went to a meeting this week where it was actually the same meeting that you went to. Um, I got a lot out of it. Mostly, I heard some new or new again people share and got a chance to talk to a couple of them after the meeting and just connect. Um, because I really like how when a new person, someone who's new to the program shares, I can still relate to what they say, even if it's relate to that feeling when I came in the rooms for the first time. And uh, one of the people is someone who uh, I met a year ago and it's just nice to see um uh, it's always nice to see someone come back who has been away for a while. And it, it's a good reminder to me that, you know, should I ever, you know, lose touch with people? It's the program is always there for me. And that is, um, that's a, that's a big, um, thing to remember is that there's no, you have to come to every meeting. You have to come to every three meetings. You have to come, you know, how many meetings out of a month to be a member. There's no requirements, and you can take what you like and leave the rest, even if leaving the rest means leaving for a year, which, you know, who knows if I will ever do that or not. Um, but it's nice to know that the program is always there for me and will accept me even if I, you know, stray away for a little while. Um mm-hmm. Stray away. Yeah. Stray away. If I, I just really feel like I've been connecting a lot to that newcomer experience lately and hearing a lot of sharing about the newcomer experience and how just reminded of how chaotic and how unmanageable it can be to be living with the disease of alcoholism or addiction. And um it made it makes me grateful and it makes me feel compassion and also reminds me, um, you know, one day at a time. Mm-hmm. One day at a time, um, because I may think that everything's all fine now, but something could happen to really just throw my life back into that unmanageability. Um, I my hometown had an interesting 
event happened to it this past weekend where 400,000 people in my home city were without water, running water to, they had running water, but it was poisoned and they couldn't drink it or bathe in it or wash their dishes in it. And um, it was really interesting to see the reactions of everyone on social media and people that I talked to from home I actually went home that day, um, coincidentally. Um, and it was really interesting to see how easy it is to, for us to have a need taken away and what it really feels like to just for a couple of days have a, a basic need be completely unavailable in the way that it's usually available. And I learned a lot from watching my family members and my loved ones react. Um, and then people, other people react differently. And, um, uh, it made me very grateful and it was very humbling to, um, be reminded that my problems aren't really that big and, a couple of days before that, one of my friends had posted on social media this picture from um, a school supply at Target. Sorry to out Target for this, but <laughs> um, you could say a store if you want to say a store. Um, <laughs> but my friend found a picture at a store. It was a back-to-school photo with a little child on it that said, everything really is that big of a deal. And... Then this water thing happened, you know, a few days later. And I'm like, really? Some things are a big deal and some things aren't. And yeah. not having any drinking water yeah. for a couple of days is a big deal. Not, not being able to drink, not being able to shower, not being able to wash your clothes, your dishes. I mean, wow. Yeah. It, and I guess you could still flush the toilet, thank goodness. But. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, there's been a recent, this weekend also, Along with all of that, there was also a family member who uh, is in intensive care all of a sudden with no sort of idea that that was, could happen or would happen. And um, it's scary because um, mm -hmm. we don't know the outcome. And it's really important for me to stay close to my higher power during times like that because there's literally nothing I can do. This person is far away hmm. in a different across the country halfway across the country hmm. and um there's nothing that i can do from where i am except just trust that you know the outcome will be what it has to be and um that's where prayer is a really important part of my recovery is just asking for god's will and um asking for the ability to be calm and patient and asking for sanity and peace um, for my family and for myself. And so this weekend was very humbling for me and uh, I needed it. Mm. I needed it. I get caught up really easily in the day-to-day -day problems and conflicts that uh, in the grand scheme of things really aren't that important. It's not that big of a deal. So that was my week. Okay, thank you, Erica. So we have upcoming topics, including caretaking or healthy support, which now that I think about it is maybe kind of related to what we talked about today or not. Uh, and, a, and a topic that several uh, of you suggested about triggers, about what kind of triggers we have maybe 
where they came from and and how we uh how we work through them how we deal with them how we you know remove them uh, and i mentioned this to a friend just last night uh, no two nights ago i guess at a meeting uh, after a meeting and and we both talked about how when we call the person in our life who was the our primary alcoholic or our first alcoholic, whatever you want to say. And they just sound a little off on the phone, you know, a little sleepy, a little disconnected, like the feeling that momentary feeling of panic that comes at us when we, and then we're like, no, no, that's not what it is. (laughs) Um, But that is the first reaction. And, and she said, you know, it's kind of like having PTSD. Uh, in a very minor way, I don't want to denigrate, uh, make make light of anybody who's got PTSD for any reason. But it, it I mean, it, you know, there was trauma, there was stress, and um, there's a remnant. And uh, so anyway, we, I think we'll hear from a couple of you who, who wrote or called in to talk about that uh, this week. And, and we had a an email a couple of weeks ago also about that. And uh, I think that'll be an interesting topic. Erica, how can people send us feedback? You can call and leave us a voicemail at 734-707-8795. That's 734-707-8795. You can also use the voicemail button on the website to join the conversation from your computer. If you prefer not to use your voice, you can send email to feedback at com. We love to hear from you. Share your experience, strength, and hope or your questions about today's topic of the four M's or any of our upcoming topics. If you have a topic you'd like to talk about or like us to talk about, let us know. Spencer, where can our listeners find out more about The Recovery Show? Hey, you can go to the website, which is therecoveryshow.com. It's all the information you need about the show. There's notes for each episode. There's a... Uh, iTunes button where you can subscribe in iTunes or uh, subscribe with your uh, your Android phone. There's a uh, a different subscribe button for that. It usually works. Uh, there's links to the music we play, as as I've mentioned, and links to some other recovery podcasts and websites that we like. And uh, if you'd really like to to join the conversation, consider being a guest host by phone or Skype. Uh, email to feedback at com if you're interested. And, you know, if you've emailed me before and we kind of said, yeah, that sounds great. Let's do it sometime. And one of these upcoming topics really strikes you, you know, let me know. Uh, because I'm, I'm always looking for guests. Always looking for new points of view. So, uh, Erica, we've got, uh, what's our second uh, musical selection? Uh, well, the second musical selection is the queen of breakups, Taylor Swift. And the song is Picture to Burn. Uh, this song struck me for uh, martyrdom, particularly, and um, here's a little excerpt from the song. I don't think song. there's any manipulation going on in there. There's some <laughs> manipulation, too. Um, state the obvious, I didn't get my perfect fantasy. I realize you love yourself more than you could ever love me. So go and tell your friends that I'm obsessive and crazy. That's fine. You won't mind if I say, by the way... And then she goes on, I really, really hate that stupid old pickup truck you used to drive. <laughs> so, um, check yeah, it out. I like it. I like 
how this song portrays that uh, sort of you were wrong, I was right. And by the way, here's what I have to say about it. And (laughs) manipulating the way the person feels about her by throwing some insults back. And so we'll take a short break before diving into the mailbag. Okay, well, welcome back. And we had uh, several bits of... uh, Feedback this week, and I want to start out with a uh, voicemail. Hi, Spencer and other hosts. This is Jen, and I had some comments about the Three C's episode, which I loved. Um, the Three C's are near and dear to my heart and were super important to my early recovery, so I thought that was a great topic and a great episode. Um, I also wanted to make a comment about the topic that was suggested in the listener feedback portion of the show. Um, about triggers from childhood and I just wanted to put out there that maybe an episode about triggers in general whether from childhood or not could be interesting Um, my qualifier has stopped drinking over the last couple of months and outside of any program um, so I guess we're sort of in a dry drunk phase now maybe but um, I had an experience a week or so ago where he came home playing really, really, really loud music in his vehicle. And um, I was inside, had not seen him, had not, um, you know, there was no interaction. All I had was this loud music out in the driveway. And I, I realized I had a very strong physical and emotional reaction just to the sound of the music. Like I could feel my blood pressure go up. I could feel my shoulders tense. I went from this relaxed state to like combat mode like okay what's what's going to happen what do i need to be playing defense when he comes in do i need to be, what, you know what's going to be the situation and um it was a bizarre sort of out of body experience because i realized as it was happening that this reaction is not proportional to the situation because um loud music was nothing new it was nothing that that started when he started drinking it you know, he's always been a music lover and, and loud music was part of our life long before drinking was. So, um, somewhere along the line during the past several years, the two drinking and, and loud music somehow became connected in my mind. So anyway, it was, it was a strange experience to realize that I was having this crazy reaction to something that was not crazy. Um, And it really made me wonder how many other triggers I might have that are more subtle, how many other um, situations that I'm having a disproportionate reaction without even realizing it because maybe it's on a smaller scale than that particular example. And also I wonder how long it will be before I've discovered even what all my triggers are. So um, I think the whole topic in general could be pretty interesting. And um, as always, keep up the good work. I love the show. Thanks. And and thanks, Jen. And that was a I, I thought that was a really um, illuminating um, sort of discussion about triggers because I hadn't thought about um, you know like disproportionality that the reaction is totally out of line with the the stimulus. Did you have any any uh, thoughts about uh, what Jen had to say, Erica? Uh, I thought it. I don't. Okay. All right then. 
Um, <laughs> Save it for next week, I guess. There you go. Uh, <laughs> and could you read the uh, the email from Michelle? Sure. Hi, Spencer and co-hosts. Thank you so much for reading my email on the show. It's really amazing to be heard and appreciated. I feel like I'm part of the community of you created so well, and I'm very grateful. I've been dealing with some trust issues with my partner that stem from issues in both of our pasts, but actually his. I feel like the only way to get over trust issues is to keep moving forward and heal one day at a time. I've been practicing compassion for him and understand where he's coming from, but I don't feel like I deserve to not be trusted just because he was mistreated by other partners. I would love a show on trust issues, how to heal from them, and deal with them in relationships. I think it might be nice to have the side of the Al-Anon as well as the addict, as both have to deal with issues of trusting or not being trusted. This is my third romantic relationship with an addict. I have all those amazing codependent and adult child qualities that make me want to fix them all. Hey. And this is the first time I've been on this side of the trust issue. I feel totally blind in dealing with it because I'm usually the one not trusting the other. And while my partner is in recovery, he is not in a 12-step program and doesn't always relate to the language I use. I hope this is something we can get over because it's such a fundamental issue in any relationship. We both want to work on it as there is so much love and respect in our relationship. We are committed to growing together, but I'm not I'm just not sure how to build this foundation. I love to hear your opinions and the opinions of the listeners as well. I frequently listen and re-listen to the Forgiveness and Detachment podcasts and find that they help. So thank you for that. I love the show and find it a great support for my ongoing recovery. In gratitude, Michelle. Thanks, Michelle. And uh, as as you heard, um, I'm dealing with trust issues uh, as well, although uh, in this case from my side. Uh, rather than from my partner's side, and I, I think, I feel that, really, I mean, that in in a relationship that's been damaged by addiction, uh, whether current or past, that trust is often very difficult. Um, yeah, I don't know. That's what I got right now, but it's a good topic. We should talk about it. I agree. I can relate, to Michelle, to having trust issues and relationships as well. Um, and for the couple of years now that I've been in the program, I still really don't have any idea how to begin addressing some of my own trust issues. Um, so I think it would be a great topic for a show, and I'm glad that you suggested it. Yeah. And I guess, you know, recognizing my own trust issues might might make it a little easier for me to accept um, that my partner might have trust issues as well. Yeah. Uh, let's see. Uh, Christy wrote in with a question. Uh, Hi, Spencer and guests. I'm so happy to be able to listen to your podcast. They have helped me so much. I have a question about starting an AWOL group. Where do you get information about how to start one? I've tried looking in the internet for a guideline so that I might be able to start one here, but I don't see any information about it. Would you be able to help me out? Thanks, and please keep up the wonderful service work that you and your guests are doing. Christy. And I think we've both been in, a, in an AWOL group. And I mean, my experience is that I heard about it. Somebody said, yes, this is a small group where we got together to work the steps. I'm like, well, that sounds like a cool idea. I probably talked to somebody who would like the person who had said about it. I don't know. And then maybe a few weeks later, a couple of us were talking after the meeting and said, 
you know, this AWOL thing sounds kind of neat. Like, maybe we should try to do that. And so we just got together. Um, I think each each person asked a few other people, and we and we started out with, uh, I think, like eight people. We started meeting first at somebody's house, and then uh, we eventually found a room to meet in at uh, the local Alano Club where we had to pay, just had to pay their rent, which was like a buck 50 a person for an hour, um, once a week. And, and our first couple of meetings, we talked about, well, how do we want to do this? How, you know, we decided we would take the book past the recovery and we would work through the questions in the book, uh, discussing each week, sort of how our thoughts, our answers are whatever journaling about, um, however many of the questions we would get through. Uh, and, and we did that. Uh, we just sort of made a commitment to each other to do it. And, and I know, you know, other people have been in, in AWOL groups that have worked differently. I have, uh, and maybe you could talk about your experience, uh, Erica, I know you were in at least one. Yeah. Uh, I've been in one sort of long-term and then I dabbled in a few others. Uh, <laughs> the thing about AWOL groups is that they are, um, they're, considered to be outside the realm of like an official meeting is as in my experience it they have been and um you can make them as meeting like or non-meeting like as you want um it's kind of free form i know people who work the steps i know people who work out of different workbooks um they read literature and discuss it um people in order to form one because i know you're asking about how to start one um some people stand up at a meeting and uh, announce that they're interested in starting one and just take whoever comes in. Some people already have a group of people that they kind of know they want to be in a group with. So um, it's most of the most of the groups I've heard of and been visited visited or been a part of are working the steps together, um, going through each step and working them together in in a, as slow or as fast as they desire to go yeah and you said a couple of important things there one is that you know each group does does it the way they do it and my first group uh, we agreed on um, some fairly strict rules about crosstalk about anonymity uh, that uh, were very important to a couple of people in the group that we not have crosstalk that we um, don't bring in uh, I once uh, talked about an experience I had, and one of, and one of the other people in the group said, "You know, I feel I know who you're talking about, and it makes me very uncomfortable. Um, so please don't do that." You know, because I was talking about something that happened in a, in another meeting, and uh, you know, the other uh, another the other group that I was in for a long time. And by the way, AWOL uh, it stands for a way of life or a way of living, uh, not like absent without leave. <laughs> um, uh, the other one that I was in for for long term, uh, we had a much more conversational style. I, we we would each generally we would each share about the question, but then we might have some conversation afterwards, and that that happened very rarely in my first group. Um, I also have uh, some friends who have been in a group that basically was more of a step study group, so they might spend um, a month looking at each step, but not necessarily feeling like they had worked it. Um, so no hard and fast rules. Uh, the, uh, the, the only thing that I would say is 
Um, I feel like one of the things that was really important to me in, in the group, both of the groups that I was in, was that we made a commitment to be together and that as we worked through the steps in our case, um, we really got to know each other well. We got to trust each other. Uh, both of those groups closed after a while so that no new people came in and so we could build that trust that was really necessary when we got to talking about um, you know, the things in, in the inventory and so on after that. Um, so, but it, it, I think just understanding what the group is going to be like and sort of agreeing ahead of time what the group is going to be like uh, is, is important. All right. That's probably Agreed. more than you wanted to hear. Uh, and uh, I want to also got another voicemail, this one from uh, Harriet. Hi, Spencer. This is Harriet. Um, I have been a fan of your show for about six months. Um, thank you so much for having it. The one topic that I would love to hear about is triggering or being triggered. And I think when I first started in the program about six months ago, what it meant to me was very different than what it has evolved into now. I think initially it seemed to mean when somebody would behave in a way that would result in me feeling a way that I didn't want to feel. And I sort of left it there. And what it has come to mean to me now is more somebody behaves in a way that triggers something that I would rather not see in myself. Um, and I don't know, I think it's a topic I would love to hear a little bit more about. So thank you so much for the show. It has been great. And keep on keeping on. Bye-bye. <laughs> Thanks, I like Harriet. that Harriet said that. My dad says that. <laughs> Keep on keeping on. <laughs> yeah. yeah. A phrase that, that I heard recently on the recovery sh- uh, on Recovered podcast is doing the do. <laughs> which I, you know, it, That's from the Mountain Dew commercials. Yeah. Do the do. Do the do. But uh, yeah, keep on keeping on. Uh, so you can see why I, I put triggering on the short list. Uh, had a, an email about it a couple weeks ago and then uh, two two calls about it, uh, two voicemails. And I feel like when somebody actually puts their voice out there, um, they probably feel pretty strongly about it. And, uh, and it does seem like a, a good topic. And I would encourage the people that uh, asked for it to call in and uh, share their experiences if they have any more. Yeah. The one that Jen shared was uh, uh, very evocative, mm-hmm. very evocative. It doesn't cost you anything to listen to the recovery show. We do have expenses which run about $60 a month. Uh, You can help to support us and keep us on the web and in your ear, Um, just like our anonymous donor today did who used the donation button on the website. We also um, can, uh, we have a couple ways that that you can get stuff for yourself and help us at the same time. Uh, We have links to Amazon, uh, both from our uh, list of recovery-related books, and also the uh, the music we play. There's a, a link to buy, download it from Amazon, uh, or to download it from iTunes. And uh, either of those, if you uh, work through that link and, and buy something, we get a little commission, and it, it helps to keep us going. At least, uh, I think those links only work if you're in the U.S. So 
Uh, and if you if you can't afford to give anything, um, that is just fine. Thank you for your support in whatever form you give it, including just listening. Do tell your friends. Uh, we are here for you. And the last song selection I want to talk about uh, is Martyr by Depeche Mode. Um, you can uh, listen to this at therecoveryshow.com slash 84. This, this whole song is, is uh, just like awesome for being a martyr. But uh, I think the, uh, the verse that uh, just grabbed me says, I've been a martyr for love, nailed up on the cross while you're having your fun. As the damage is done, I'm assessing the cost. I knew what I was letting myself in for. I knew I could never even the score. I've been a martyr for love. Damn. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Thank you for listening, and please keep coming back. Whatever your problems, there are those among us who have had them too. If we did not talk about a problem you are facing today, feel free to contact us so we can talk about it in a future episode. May understanding, love, and peace grow in you one day at a time. 